0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 34. We have been in this section of John 4 for about seven weeks now, uh, looking at the concept of worship, where Jesus said, those who worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we've dealt with worship quite extensively. We talked about last week some of the, the meanings of why or how the woman went back into the city and just said, look at this man who's told me all these things, everything about my life, and and come and see him. Uh, Perhaps he is the Messiah. And the people came and heard him. And we've talked about how she did that, not because she was told to, not because there was a command, because the command for evangelism, the command for missions came long after that, after that encounter. This was the first of Jesus' ministry, the command for evangelism came toward the end of his ministry, even as he ascended into heaven. And as, as uh, Luke talked about in Acts chapter 1, as he quoted the Lord in those last days before he ascended. But, but the point is, this whole passage is about evangelism and missions. It's about evangelism and missions from the believer's point of view. The woman wasn't commanded. When she met Christ, she just did what was natural. She went and told people about this one whom she had met who, who changed their life from meeting, uh, meeting him. And in many of the same ways we need to come to that re- rediscovery, recovery of a, a passion from within that comes not from a commandment, not from an instruction, not from a course or a class, but that comes from simply knowing Christ, meeting Christ, and overflowing with the gratitude and, and loving that he gives to us. It's just a matter of evangelism being something that becomes a lifestyle. But we live in a day when evangelism, quite frankly, is frowned upon. Uh, Even within churches, many times, that word has become kind of an uncomfortable word, evangelism. When we think of evangelism, we think of tele-evangelist or somebody who who has this massive uh, audience that they speak to. And we don't really think about it being something that not only is commanded, not only is a part of the church, but it's something that we are called upon to be a part of and to show forth in our life every single day. But the culture outside certainly uh, looks down upon the whole concept of evangelism and missions in a very strict sense of the word. I I was interested this week to read an article dated this past Wednesday, July the 11th, out of Salon Magazine. You may know Salon. I don't know. It's it's a -A S-A-L-O-N. It's a fairly leftist, fairly liberal magazine. But sometimes they do a little cultural commentary on religious matters. And they decided this week to talk about the Southern Baptist Convention, and I found that quite interesting. I want to read you just a part of a paragraph here that they wrote. He said, with secularism on the rise, entrepreneurial Christian denominations have evolved into a variety of survival tactics. Anglican theologian John Shelby Spong, and I use that word theologian, they didn't, but I use it rather loosely because to be a theologian, you have to have a theology, and to have a theology, you have to have a God. And sprong's done away with most of those but anyway they say Anglican theologian shelby sprong in his book why christianity must change or die proposes a rigorous rethinking of christian belief now they don't say it here but basically what sprong says we got to do away with things like the atonement on the cross we got to do away with things like the resurrection of christ we got to do away with things like the virgin conception of the lord jesus christ we got to do away with things like the deity of christ and realize he's just a man Uh, just like one of us, and went through the same things we did. So Salon thinks Shelby Spong's really got some great ideas for American Christianity today. Or the mainline denominations such as Methodism and, uh, and the mainline Presbyterianism, PCUSA, and Unitarian congregations, they have embraced Michael Dowd's evolutionary Christianity, which is an interplay between Christian worship and scientific wonder. Elsewhere on the spectrum, Joel Osteen plays down theology, Instead, offering comforting platitudes and promises of prosperity to those who will pray and give. Willow Creek Mega Church in Chicago pioneered sound and light shows and indie rock bands that entice young people into the club by emulating familiar entertainment media. But a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, the Southern Baptist Convention voted to approve a name change, allowing their congregations to, if they chose, Uh, to not use Southern Baptists, but to use Great Commission Baptists. It's sort of presented as an identifier, if you will. The name change, according to Salon Magazine, is meant to distance from their past association with racism, but it does much more. To those in the know, and obviously they are, to those in the know, it announces that their future will not be like evolutionary Christianity. It will not be like Christianity must change or die. But in the future, they will be focused on turf wars. They will be focused on competing for members and dollars rather than any kind of forward-facing spiritual leadership that embraces all faiths. To draw an analogy, imagine that Coca-Cola decided to distance from its past sales of cocaine drinks by dropping the coca and just calling themselves world-dominance cola. Imagine announcing to the public, rather than improving our product, we've chosen to focus on our marketing department. That is essentially what the new name for Baptist means. Well, I thought the new name was kind of silly myself, but not for the reasons they did. What they're saying there basically is, listen, we live in a day when evangelism should not be a central matter. To be evangelistic, to be mission-minded, means that you have to say, we have something of the truth. We have learned, we have met this man like the woman did. And we want to tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to tell you about his gift of salvation. We want to tell you about his atonement that he won on Calvary and his resurrection. there. We want to tell you the gospel, the good news, which is what this woman did, going into the city and said, I've discovered some good news and I want to tell you about it. And they're saying, boy, if you do that, you're becoming very provincial. You're becoming very backward-facing, not forward-facing. And the whole idea of evangelism is anathema to our culture. Well, I, I just want you to see that what we're looking at today, what Jesus is talking about here in this passage, is basically saying that evangelism is a part of Christianity. If you take out evangelism and take out missions, you no longer have Christianity. You, you have something, but it's not Christianity. It's kind of like saying, you know, I, I like ice cream. I just don't like that it's frozen. You know, it's just, it's just, I don't like it being frozen. Well, if you unfreeze ice cream, you have something, syrup, goop, pudding, I don't know. You've got something, but you don't have ice cream. It's the same way with Christianity. If you take out the command, if you take out the understanding that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Him, that you take that out, you, you, you have something left, you have religion, you have moralism, you have Duguidism, but you don't have Christianity. That's what Jesus wants us to see in this passage again out of John, the fourth chapter. Listen as I read, beginning in verse 34. Jesus said to them, and This was our main text last week My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift your eyes, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white for harvest right now. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for the eternal life, for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and one reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And both rejoice, the Lord says. This is his word about evangelism and about the truth of it. I want you to think about what it means to sow this morning. I want you to think about what it means. To, when Jesus says one sows and one reaps, We know what reaping is. Reaping is leading someone to faith in Christ. Reaping is is seeing someone who's ready and ripe and and the Holy Spirit is working in his or her life. And you share the gospel and they trust Christ and they're baptized. They become uh, disciples of Jesus Christ. That's reaping. But what is sowing? The woman that we hear about in Samaria in this particular passage was a sower. Now quickly as the people went, they were reaped by the disciples as Jesus spoke. But the, the truth of the matter is, she was a sower. She just went and said, "Listen, I want to tell you about something. I want to tell you about a truth." And, and I'm, she didn't say, "Now nah, I want you to get on your knees. I want you to pray this prayer." She says, "I want to get you. I want you to repent of your sin." Right? I just want to tell you, there's this man who told me everything about my life, and it's changed my life because I met him face to face. I was reading this past week about a. A missionary to Korea. He's credited with being the first missionary to Korea. He was from Wales. His name was Robert Thomas. Robert Thomas was a missionary in China and just had a burning heart, a burning desire for the Korean people. The Korean people were known as the hermit nation. Nobody went there. They kept the borders closed off, they kept to themselves. But he had a passion, he had a desire to take the gospel to Korea. And so he started learning a little bit of Korean language and got a few things down right. But he did know that most of the Koreans read Chinese. And so he didn't have any Korean tracts or Korean Bibles, but he did have some in Chinese. And he gathered those together and he prepared to go to Korea. He wasn't sure how he was going to get there because the borders were closed. But he heard one day that there was an American ship. This was in 1866. There was an American ship, interesting name, the USS General Sherman. You that's kind of an irony in that, I think. But they were going to go in and try to establish trade relations with Korea. And so they went in. He offered to go along as a translator. He said, I know a little bit of Korea, and I can translate for you, maybe help you get that happen. So he went. And the General Sir, Sherman sailed into a bay, and the, the Korean forces met them at, the, at the, the bay. They sailed on up a river a little further, and they continued to tell them to stop and turn around and go back. And they didn't do it. So the Koreans began to fire upon the ship, and the ship ran aground in this river. and it was kind of stalled there, and they kept shooting back and forth, and the, the, the Americans were shooting at them. They were shooting at the Americans. It was just sort of a, an American standoff there in Korea, and, and Robert Thomas was on the boat. A little later, the Koreans set a boat afire and set, set it adrift downriver so that it hit the USS General Sherman and set it ablaze. Now the soldiers and Robert Thomas had a choice to make. They either had to get off the boat and swim to shore, or they had to burn alive on the boat. They chose the former. They jumped into the water and swam ashore, and as they swam ashore, the Koreans summarily executed every one of them. Thomas was with them. They did notice something about this guy, Thomas. They didn't know who he was, but he didn't come with a sword or a gun. He didn't come with a machete like they had, but he rather came with a handful of books. And as he got on the shore, he began to throw the books at the various Korean soldiers. And he went up with one final Bible held in his hand. And one of the Koreans took his machete and whacked Thomas' uh, Thomas's head off right where he was. And he died on the spot. But the soldier who killed him picked up the book. He was amazed by that. He realized immediately that he had killed someone that was different from the others. He wasn't shooting at him, wasn't trying to kill him. And he came ashore crying, Jesus, Jesus, in the Korean language. This man, uh, his name was Lou, took the Bible, Pak Sue. excuse me, Pak Kusoo. Uh, he, he went back to his house with the Bible and did an interesting thing with it. He thought it must be an important book. So he took it apart, page by page, and he wallpapered his living room with it, put it on the wall. And they say that for a period of time, people would come by and they would come into to Sue's house and they would begin to read the wall. The pages are on the wall. And by reading those, they read the gospel. And before long, there was a, there was a church, there was a group of believers that, that came to trust Christ. And they began to meet in Sue's house. And later on, Sue had died, but his nephew became the pastor of that church that met in Sue's house. Now, I, I submit to you today that Robert Thomas was a sower. A lot of people would look at him and say he was a failure. He went ashore trying to share the gospel, wanting to minister the gospel to these people, and and immediately upon his feet, touching the shore almost, he was martyred. He was killed. But his going with those Bibles, speaking the name of Christ just briefly, was used by God with that Bible papered to a wall to see many people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a church be founded there. Today, South Korea is considered to be about 60% Christian. One of the largest genuinely Christian populations in the entire world. And and Robert Thomas is considered the father of Korean missions because he went there with a heart and a passion. He didn't get to preach at all. He he didn't get to teach any Bible studies or any systematic theology or, or tell them anything more than Jesus, Jesus, and throw a Bible at them. And then he died. But he was a sower. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he says, listen, I want you to lift up your eyes. I want you to see that the fields are white to harvest. I want you to understand that where you go to work and where you go to school and where you live every day, there are peoples whose hearts need to have the gospel sown within them. You may not be able to convince them to come to Christ and you won't be apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We know that. You may not be able to convince them that they need to do this right now, but you tell them the truth, you reflect just a little bit, you do something to what Jesus did with this woman at the well, and seeds are planted, and truth is planted, and who knows what may germinate and what may grow and what may happen down the road. And I may come along and be able to reap them, or you may be able to come along and reap something that has been sown by somebody else. But I contend to you today that that is the heart of Christianity. We're going into the Chonkai River Valley in, in Peru all year long, taking teams down there every month or so. And a lot of what we're doing is just sowing. We've seen some people express faith in Christ. But a lot are just being sown. They're sown. And I don't know. We may finish our time there, and we may leave the Chonkai River Valley and may not see a a great harvest of of people for Christ. I don't know. It may be somebody else going into that valley five years, ten years after we leave, and a great awakening arrive, and people come to trust Christ in a way. But it's not that we failed. We planted what God told us to plant, and others reaped it. That's what Jesus is saying is the essence of Christianity here. And we need to understand that. We need to recognize that. We need to recognize how Jesus dealt with this woman. I want you to see basically seven things here that he did that you can do tomorrow morning, wherever you are, with whomever you come in contact. with. there's seven simple things that Jesus did with this woman that planted the seed in her life that she could go plant it in somebody else's life. First of all, I want you to see he worked amid the daily routine of life in this woman's life. He, he operated within the normal routine of her life. He didn't say when he saw at the well, now I'm going to be holding a tent meeting down the, the other side of, of Samaria tonight, and if you would, come down there and you can hear the gospel. He didn't do that. He, he didn't say, you know, there's some, there's some special things you need to know or read or understand, and I, if you'll go to this class, you can gain those. He didn't say that. He simply said, he somebody dealt with her where she was she had come out there to draw water he was coming there with his disciples at the same time they went into town to get food and he was thirsty that was the normal essence of the, of life he just dealt with her in the normal you don't have to do anything really special to plant the gospel in people's lives that you come in contact with every day. You don't have to push them in some other direction or or try to get them to go see the preacher or anything else. You you just start sharing a little bit in your life of what Christ has done and who Christ is, who Jesus Christ is. You say, well, they may not want to hear that. They may not believe that. That's, That's exactly true. They may not at that point. That doesn't keep us from sharing it. That shouldn't keep us from telling it because that's a part of what Christianity is. Secondly, he tactfully began with her on her plane of life. Back in, in the early part of this passage, you know, the, in verse 7, the woman came of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. May I have a drink of the water that you're about to draw out of that? And of course, in, in verse 9, she says, what are you asking me? You, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water. Who are you? I mean, all of a sudden, the 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 social taboos were torn down immediately just by him tactfully asking her a question. May I have a drink of water? I contend to you that some of the greatest effectiveness in evangelism comes by just asking questions. You don't have to know all the answers. Uh, You just have to ask questions. Can I have a drink of water? It was on her plane. It was in her normal routine of life and he just approached her in a very normal way. It, it might be at work. You might have someone, and they may have something you need to borrow, and you can say, hey, may I borrow that for a moment? May I have that for a moment? And, and they would look at you because you've just kind of not anything to do with them and say, well, why are you talking to me about this? Well, I just want to do that. There's a lot of things besides water that you can move into a, another direction, as we'll see in the, the third principle that Jesus gives here. In doing this, he, he's gingerly and carefully moved from the earthly to the heavenly in their conversation. There's generally a similarity between the two spheres, no matter what you're doing, nor what you're talking about. I would imagine you talk a lot about Kentucky basketball. I think if you think real hard, you can find some kind of spiritual application to move from talking about things you talk about every day to talk about spiritual things. Boy, don't you just really find a lot of joy when those Wildcats win? Don't you really just feel good about it when that happens? Don't, doesn't, doesn't it just a, a general peace come over your life when you know they've won? I'm being a little sarcastic there, I know, but I do the same thing with Alabama football. But, but the, the truth is, the truth is, you can move that to talk about it. You know, I, I know someone who brings a greater joy in life than any basketball win ever could. You say, well, that's kind of taking the mundane and going to the the, uh, celestial, isn't it? Exactly. And that's what Jesus did here. can you give me a drink of water? Why would you ask me for a drink of water? Well, let me tell you something. I have some water that if you knew about it, you would ask me to give you of my water, and I would give you water to drink, and you'd never thirst again. Now, She thought he was talking about some kind of super water that would keep her from having to come to that well again. He wasn't talking about that. He was talking about in your life, you have pursued happiness, you have pursued joy, you have pursued a satisfaction of your innermost thirst in every way possible, but I can give you water that will satisfy that. So he moved from the the earthly to the heavenly in a very Quick moment. And, and in doing that, the fourth principle here, I think, in evangelism or in sharing the gospel with somebody is, fourthly, he created that desire for heavenly things within her. Just in 11 through 15, he talked about it. You know, I'll give you something that you'll never thirst again, and, and, and I'll help you to understand that there are greater things. And he, he instilled that thirst in her. Most of us don't instill a great thirst in people who we want to share the gospel with. As a matter of fact, most of us, sadly, do exactly the opposite of what Jesus did here. We become very condemning. We become very, you know, well, boy, you ought not be doing that before we ever tell them about the joy that is in Christ Jesus, before we ever talk about the good news of Christ and then move them to understand why they have a basic need for Christ. We just become very judgmental and very, very condemning in their lives. Jesus didn't do that. He broke down the sexual and the, the racial barriers and he simply started moving into a point where he did deal with her, her sin need. There, he didn't let that go. But before he did that, he started instilling her in a, in a thirst or a, a desire for heavenly things in verses 11 through 15. Then fifthly, he brought her face to face and brought her conscience face to face with her sin in connection with her former husbands. Go get your husband and bring him out here, and let's talk about it. Well, I don't have a husband. Well, you're right. You don't have a husband. You told the truth on one level. You you, you don't have a husband because you've been married, you had five husbands, and now the man you're living with is not even your husband. Can you imagine what she thought? All of a sudden, very lovingly and very... Carefully, he brought her face to face with her greatest need, her sin need. Not by blasting her, not by calling her a harlot, not by saying you're the loose woman in town. No, he didn't do any of that. He just said, you know, you're telling me the truth. You're honest. She didn't become put off by that. She didn't say, well, I I can't believe you said that. I'll never listen to you again. Didn't do that. No, she 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 was enthralled by that. She was moved by that, and she said in verse 10, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's not offended with that conversation, but it did do something that caused her to think, to think about Christ. Now, now, now let me be, be careful here. You can't convict of sin. It's not your place to convict of sin. But as you're going and sowing with the gospel and just want to do it in a loving and and, and gentle way with people where you are, if you want to sow the truth of the gospel, you first of all pray that the Holy Spirit will do His work as you share about the gospel. It's only the Holy Spirit that that can convict. You can't do it. I can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit can. And so you pray beforehand, Lord, I may have to deal with some things that are uncomfortable, and I just pray, Lord, that you will prepare the heart of the one I'm about to share with. And that as we're talking, you will open their hearts and open their eyes to see their need for a Savior, to see their need for the gospel. Sixth principle of sharing the gospel here that that Jesus shows us, Is he answered the difficulties that the woman had. He he answered those difficulties quite interestingly. She had these questions. She said, Listen. And and part of it was she was trying to distract him, there's no doubt about it. Part of it, she was trying to say, I gotta get his, I gotta get him off of this thing about my my husband's and my lifestyle. He didn't let her do that. He didn't let her distract her. Distracted distract him, he brought her right back. But, but she said, well, what about worship? You Jews say we do it down in Jerusalem, but our people, we say here in this mountain, where do, where do you say? What do you say? Jesus just very gently said, I want to tell you, a day is coming and now is here. It's not going to matter whether you worship in that mountain or whether you worship in Jerusalem. It's not going to matter place. It's not going to matter time. The only criteria is going to be that you worship in spirit and in truth. You worship the Father in spirit and in truth with a spirited worship from within that comes from knowing Christ and the truth of God's Word uh, informing that, real, that worship, the truth of God's Word guiding that worship. That's how you're going to worship and you might do it in Jerusalem. You might do it in this mountain. You might do it in Somerset, Kentucky. That's The place is not the issue. Worship itself is the issue. He answered our difficulties. We get all afraid when people start raising issues. If you've been in some of our Wednesday night theology classes, we've talked about different difficult things, and even about sharing our faith there, one of the things I, I encourage you to do is, is use what... Uh, A friend of mine in California coined as the Columbo method. Just ask questions. Okay, I know some of you are so young, you don't know who Columbo is. I realize I have to explain it to that class too. The the bambling, bumbling Detective Columbo, who always solved his case, but not by knowing all the answers, but solved it by asking the right questions. Uh, uh, Let me just ask you one more thing. And a lot of times when people raise issues, you know, I, I had someone a week or so ago say, Well, you know, I, I, I raised this issue with I was talking with them about the, the gospel of Christ. They said, Well, you know, the, the Bible has really changed over the years. I said, Really? Yeah, some of the books that ought to be in there are not in there. And, that, you know, they just, the people chose what they wanted to be in there. I said, Really? How do you know that? Well, I, I know that Richard, I heard Richard Dawkins say that. It's a good authority. You know, I heard someone, someone said, one of my teachers said that one time in my college class. The Bible's not what it started out to be, and it's, it's not what it ought to be today. I said, really? So you've made a real intense study of the, of the manuscripts and the, and the way the canon was formed, and you understand that, that you, you've come to conviction that what's there is not fully complete. Well, no, I've never done that. Well, okay, let's talk about that a little bit. What do you think ought to be there that's not there? Well, I'm not sure what that would be. Well, what do you think ought to be in there that's not talked about in there? Well, I don't know, but there's something. I I just ask questions. Well, I don't believe that Jesus is the only way. Really? Why do you believe that? Well, it just doesn't seem fair to me. Okay. Well, what do you believe about Jesus? Well, I believe he was a good teacher and he was a great man. Oh, okay. Well, he's the one that said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man, no man, no man comes to the Father but through me. Do you think a good teacher would make that, and a good moral man would make that kind of claim if it wasn't true? I mean, he's basically saying, listen, he says to this woman, look, the one who is talking to you, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, but the one who's speaking to you, I am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. I'm the one you've been looking for all these years. Here I am. Just by asking questions, just by asking questions, you can, you can destroy the, many of the objections that are just not logical objections. Now, you've got to study a little bit, no doubt. You've got to know a little bit about what is true. But you don't have to be a mighty theologian to be able to answer those questions or ask those questions. Seventh thing, final thing. He revealed Himself to her as the answer to her search for the true object of worship. He said, I'm He. I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the one you've been pursuing. I'm the one that the the Jews and the Samaritans alike have been talking about and pursuing. I am He. And folks, all evangelism and all missions ultimately have to come to that. Objection is about, well, I you know, I just believe church is full of hypocrites. You know what my answer to that is when someone throws that up at me? You're right, it is. So a lot of people who make a lot of claims and don't live those claims out. But you know what? They're they're seeking to walk with Christ. They don't always do it perfectly. And you've probably run into one that just really blew it away and, and did a horrible job of presenting the truth of Christ. But you know, it's not about me, it's not about them, it's not about the church. It's about who is Christ, who he said he was. Do you think he's a hypocrite? Do you think he's a liar? Do you think he's some kind of phony? Usually they'll say, well, no. I said, then let's see what he said and let's move on forward from that. Sure, the church is full of hypocrites. I'm talking to a bunch of them right now, and you're listening to one right now. I can't live it out perfectly, and you can't either. We struggle with that as long as we're in this flesh. Thus my prayer this morning, the pastoral prayer, Lord, deliver us from hidden idolatries. Deliver us from hidden sins. Deliver us from things that we don't even recognize are displeasing to you. Search us and know us and show us what that is. He revealed himself to her. He said, I who speak to you am he. We have to say, listen, in the final analysis, who is he? And what are you going to do with him? Who is he? Are you going to come to a point of of examining that in your life and saying, he's either a liar or a crazy man, or he's the Lord of the universe? That's the only options we have. What are you going to do with that? Now there'll be some who'll say, well, I guess he's just a liar. And you go on, you pray for them. You take every opportunity to share with them. You don't write them off and say, well, you're just a, 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 an idiot and a pagan and I don't want anything to do with you. You don't do that. Continue to pray for them. Somebody, a friend of mine said this week in a, something he wrote, he said, you know, if, if you look at anybody and say that they are beyond the gospel, then you don't think high enough of the gospel. Because Paul said in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all men everywhere who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Where are you sowing? How are you sowing? Are you consciously thinking about sowing wherever God in his providence has placed you? I I remember reading years ago a story about Hudson Taylor, great missionary to China. And after many years of laboring, he led a young man, a young Buddhist leader, who was a dealer in cotton, a, a businessman. He led him to Christ after Hudson Taylor shared with him the, the, the message of John 3, 14 through 15. Didn't even get to 3.16. The young man arose and, and made this statement to Hudson Taylor. He said, I have long sought the truth, as did my father before me, but without finding it. I have traveled far and near, but have never searched it out and found it. In Confu- Confucianism, in Buddhism, in Taoism, I have found no rest. But I do find rest in what I have heard tonight in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Henceforth, I am a believer in Jesus. And he went to on to become a leader in a church and Christianity in that city in which he lived. A little bit later... And talking to Hudson Taylor. This young man said, um, "How long have you had the good news in England? I mean, that'll pierce our hearts. How long have you had the good news of Jesus Christ in Somerset?" Taylor looked at him rather ashamed and said vaguely, "Well, Several hundred years, to which this young man, Nye, said to him, What? Several hundreds of years? Is it possible that you have known about Jesus so long and only now have come to tell us? My father sought the truth for more than 20 years. This young man continued sadly, and he died without finding it oh why did you not come sooner why did you not come sooner now we know that no man comes to the father no man comes to christ unless the spirit draws him we know that's true but if they're not hearing the gospel the spirit's not going to draw them the spirit doesn't work apart from his gospel apart from his word and he is chosen and sometimes i wonder about god's wisdom in this I say with tongue in cheek, he has chosen to use you and me. We are the sowers. We are the ones he said, I want you to go. And as you go, and you're going to be going, you're going to be going to work and to school and to ball games and, and to picnics and everything else. As you go, make disciples of all men. It's not an option. It's not something that says, oh, well, maybe someday I'll decide to be an evangelist or missionary or maybe someday I'll do something with the gospel. No, it's as you go, make disciples. This woman in Samaria obeyed that before before there even was a command, before there was a great commission. Why? Because she met Christ and he changed her life. Who in your life might one day say, How long have you known about, how long have you known this good news? How long have you known about Christ and, and, and His saving work? How long have you known about joy that is found in Him and peace and forgiveness and cleansing and, and His righteousness being given to us? How long have you known about that? Well, 40 years, 50 years, 10 years? And you're just now? You're just now, telling me we've been friends for 30 years, we've been friends for five years. You're just now telling me, you see, Christianity without sharing the gospel, what we would call evangelism, is something other than Christianity, it's something. It's something, but it's not Christianity. Let's pray. Father, we know that salvation is by your grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. And we know, Father, that you have chosen, you have said your word that no one comes to salvation without hearing the word. And how will they hear without someone who shares it? And how will they share it unless they go? And how will they go unless we send them? I mean, that, that, that's so integral to the message of Christianity. Father, I pray this day, your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts. Lord, just make us sowers. You don't call us to be successful evangelists. You don't call us to be powerful. You you call us to sow. Now, most of us, when we sow, won't meet the end that Robert Thomas did. Most of us won't be beheaded the moment we set foot somewhere to share the gospel. That's that's an extreme case, But, but we may be, We may be laughed at. We may be rejected. Lord, they laughed at Jesus and they rejected you. But you have promised us that you will go before us and you will prepare hearts and ripen hearts that are ready to hear. You've called us just to sow the truth of the gospel. Lord, help us do that unashamedly and boldly. Help us, Lord, as a church to awaken to that need. Father, I pray for men and women that are here this morning that don't know you. I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in their heart. They've, They've heard a message to believers today about the need to take the gospel, but perhaps your Holy Spirit has moved in their hearts and Showing them the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ Jesus, dying for our sins, raising from the dead, empowering us to live by his righteousness. Father, I pray you draw them to yourself. I pray that they would profess you and, and, and make their profession of faith through baptism, Lord. Be a disciple that follows you and learns from you. Father, we ask you to do your work as only you can. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen.